Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Long ago, there was Plantronics, and it was a glory of a small cap stock from $3 up to $77 and down, John, just a complete debacle to $26. A takeout this morning, all cash, HP, $40 per share. Dave Shull looks like a genius. What do they do, Tom? They do headphones. They do stuff like that. Are they, they do, good headphones? They, I don't know. No, they're not like those kind of headphones. I mean, you know, you're not listening like at to your t- desk no, headphones. Yeah. They're not like you, when you listen to Tyler, the creator. They're not like that. They're like when you're like, hello, line two. They've got John Farrow's on, on line two. Yeah, that kind of right, thing. that thing. Okay. okay, we'll move on Thanks from that. But that's that. an interesting story there. <laughs> the only one that understands what I'm talking about is Terry Weissman, who remembers this at Bear Stearns years ago, not on Plantronics, but on interest rates and currencies. Terry, I am honored you are on today, and I want to link it right into Macquarie, which is Aussie yen. When we move like we move, things happen. What should we be paying attention to with weak yen, three standard deviation long renminbi, three standard deviation long Aussie, et cetera? What do we got to focus on? We, we still have to focus on uh, what the central banks are going to do, and especially what the BOJ is going to do over the next few weeks. They have a, a meeting coming up in a few weeks. And we think that they're going to um, potentially raise that cap on 10-year JGB really? yields. Yes. You're willing to call that, that they're going to go from a 0.25 out to something new? Yeah, probably about above 0.3, maybe 0.3 to 0.4, somewhere in that range. Uh, I, th- I think at right. some point... There's going to be a, a, a loss or, or a lack of tolerance for, for a weaker yen. As you said, imports are going to start getting more expensive in Japan. Right. Uh, it's true that they need more inflation, but it seems that they also right. don't need the kind of uncertainty that's brought to the market by a lot of dollar yen volatility. Okay, but Terry, with all and your with all your I gotta interrupt because this is so, so important. You and I are ensconced at the Imperial Hotel at the old Frank Lloyd Wright bar. You're having sake I can't afford. I'm having a triple scotch, and we're talking about a cultural change in Japan. Are we gonna see that at this time? No, I wouldn't describe it as such. That to say it's a cultural change would be to say that somehow 0.25% is some sort of line in the sand that is immutable. Uh, we never thought that. Uh, it was in, always intended to adjust with conditions. Uh, inflation is returning to Japan to some extent. But more importantly, this, the BOJ risks having a situation where it's forced to absorb and buy every JGB on the planet uh, if, if yields outside of Japan continue to go up and people continue to dump their JGBs. I don't think the BOJ would want to be in a position where it completely loses control of its balance sheet. And the adjustment they have to make here is to raise the cap. It's not a cultural change. I think it's what central banks do all the time. Uh, Move with the times, move with the data. Tara, there was a time when actually people would not have found that as shocking, considering how much of some of the markets the Bank of Japan ended up owning. I do wonder, though, going back to your question about the idea of a weak currency being a bad thing, 
after so many years when I'm sure that the Bank of Japan would have welcomed a weaker currency. We've seen this race to strengthening in the uh, FX market. Are you saying that the Bank of Japan will be in the same camp and that really it's a fight to preserve the worth in order to avoid that kind of bad inflationary input? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the kind of inflation that, that the, the rest of the world is seeing is certainly going to be, to be visited on Japan, after all. Uh, they, they are not a commodity economy. Their, their terms of trade are not improving here. There's no reason to believe outside of central bank policy that the yen would stabilize uh, at these levels. And I think they recognize that and will be forced to make an adjustment. It may be small. It may not be enough to, to you know, take dollar yen back down to 110 or 105. But I think it'll be enough to start stabilizing uh, uh, dollar yen. The other thing I would keep in mind is that dollar yen typically does not go up in those periods after the U.S. yield curve inverts. And we are very close to inversion now, the same way we were in 2007 and the same way we, we were in 2019. If you look back at both those episodes, dollar yen was not rising anymore. It may have been rising before, but it started to fall after the inversion. So that's another reason why we think that dollar yen may stabilize around these levels. This raises a question about what the haven is and whether the dollar really becomes the last standing haven that will continue to get inflows and continue to get stronger versus all of its uh, developed market peers amid the turmoil, both with respect to inflation, but also with respect to uh, potential growth scares. But not necessarily. I, I, we have seen the commodity currencies do very well in this context at, at, at the expense of the dollar. Uh, the Canadian dollar has been stable. The Aussie dollar has been stable. Many of the emerging market uh, uh, currencies that are associated with commodity economies, as in Latin America, have been very stable. So I would not necessarily say that the dollar is is the la is the redoubt here of, of the inflationistas. There are other currencies that one can buy here if one wants better protection, especially against the commodity-driven, supply-shock-driven inflation. Terry, just quickly, the BOJ today had to come in multiple times. I'm just thinking a few steps, a few miles down the road, Terry, and getting to the end of the story. Are they going to own the whole of this JGB market once they're done? Because they own a no, lot of it no, already. I, no, I don't think so, because I think that's not something they want to do. That would eliminate liquidity from the market. I don't think that's the central bank's responsibility. But Terry, they've central done that already, still... haven't they? What liquidity is there in the JGP market? We go some days where it's not even traded. No, uh, uh, agreed. And, but I don't think they're going to force things to an extreme here. There, there needs to be a, a liquid JGB market for the, central, right. for, the, for the federal government to issue into. I don't think a central bank's role is to eliminate uh, liquidity. And remember, we were looking at very tough times in Japan in the past. Deflation. We're not looking at that anymore in Japan. The need to, 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 ref, to, to reflate is, is diminishing in importance. And the need to potentially bring back liquidity to the JGB market is increasing in importance. Terry, uh, it's, it's a relative switch. I think they're going to raise the limit, the, the upper limit on, on JGB. That's what I wanted to get to. That's going to be the big issue. Terry Wiseman and Macquarie, thank you, sir. Right now, maybe your most important conversation of the day we're fixated on yield. We're fixated on bond price. Sarah Hunt looks at equities, portfolio manager, Alpine Woods Capital Investors. One measure I have, uh, Sarah, of bond price is back to a price of 2009. The can be the idea of an ETF, a, a given bond market ETF that's, I don't know if it's a bear market, but it's a pretty ugly number, negative 11% on price. And yet equities are resilient. Is it just money choosing? Is it flow from fixed income to equity? 
I think it's the same problem that we've been seeing since you've had since 2009, when you've had interest rates at such historic lows. And I think that this fast, fast move in the bond market and yields has caught people a little bit off guard. And I think that there is some belief that equities have more safety in them because you've got more growth in equities than you have potentially in the economy. And I, ju I just don't I think that it's very difficult when bonds have more volatility than some of the things that are supposed to be volatile, like Bitcoin, which you were discussing earlier. And, I, and this move is just taking people, I think, very much by surprise. Do you have a gauge of the revenue line of the corporations you follow, the ones you like, the ones you hold, the ones you sell? And is the misestimation here that nominal GDP will give us better revenue growth than anybody cares to admit? I think that part of the upside to inflation in people's minds is that, yes, you will have an inflation in revenues. I think what is not being thought about as, as deeply is what that does to margins and what that does to the costs on the other side. In the beginning, you have higher prices, but you don't have those costs catching up. As those costs start to catch up, then it becomes a much more difficult balance between can I keep my margins and still be raising my revenue lines or not? And I think that's where in the, in the near term, the equities have the advantage, but I think that there, there is some question as to how all these input costs, which are not going to be as easy to fix as people are hoping, come down. And that includes the energy price, which is a big part of what's going on here that's going to flow through to a lot of other things besides just energy prices themselves. So just drilling down into the granularity of markets and frankly equities more broadly, how much can you bet on consumer discretionaries at a time like this? Uh, I have to say, I'm um, sorry, gentlemen, but I'm in Camp Lisa on this one. I am very concerned that all these higher prices are going to lead to different spending choices and for people to pull back a little bit and to worry that they are going to not have enough money to deal with things like higher energy price bills, higher heating bills, higher cooling bills in the summer and higher food prices. So I do think that it makes people more cautious about what they spend. You've got the conflicting aspect of coming out of the pandemic, which we're still trying to do. So yeah. there's also a little bit of excitement to both spend and travel. So those are competing forces at the moment. Right. But if you don't have some changes longer term in energy prices, I think that really does affect, affect consumer psychology. And John, what's important here is we all know Camp Lisa is a lot like Total Drama Island. Yeah, I, mean, the, I don't know the if swim you want to actually go alone, to Camp Lisa. The swim test alone is enough to kill you, let alone the black <laughs> flies. Camp Lisa is not a place you might <clears throat> not want to go to. I mean, Lisa, what happens at Camp Lisa? <laughs> what goes on there? <laughs> you just, you know, walk around feeling kind of gloomy. No, in, in all honesty, what you do is you look at the data, getting back to this point, Sarah, that you're raising, and I want to get a little bit closer to it. This this idea of not wanting to go into consumer discretionaries at a time of pressure on some of these households, what counts as discretionary? Is it an Apple phone? Is it an iPhone? Is it an Apple Watch? Is it, uh, you know, some of the basic mainstays of households that cost a lot and used to be discretionary, but perhaps no longer are? So I would argue that something like Apple went from being, I agree, a discretionary to something. Can you imagine when you leave your house without your phone by accident, it feels like you, you know, it's like something terrible has happened. So I'm not sure that that counts as much as discretionary as on the margin, people doing more on the both travel and entertainment side, maybe you put something off for a little while longer. Even though you're excited to travel, maybe you only take one trip instead of two, depending on what's going on with COVID. And that's another thing that's still problematic. Look at China. You're seeing oil backing down today, partially on the back of the fact that China is, once again, having issues and is trying to curtail COVID by shutting things down. I think that there is so much going on right now. It is very difficult to parse each and every piece. But ultimately, we still have the problem of 
all the factors have moved towards a higher energy price and higher food prices, that is going to be tough for consumers. However you define discretionary, it's still going to be a problem. I cannot keep up with this market at the moment. Sarah, thank you. Sarah Hunt of Alpine Woods Capital Investors as she ducks out the way and heads towards <laughs> well, Camp Lisa. Camp Lisa. It's a really exciting You have to place. sort of like burrow underground. This is a joy, and with the uproar over the last 48 hours on President Biden and the trip, we thought we'd talk to the adult in the room who actually can give perspective. Professor Schiller, Wendy Schiller's Taubman Center for American Politics at Brown University, is, is definitive in the span of American history. Wendy Schiller, Obama, 2008. I know that I don't look like the Americans who've previously spoken in this great city. Obama clearly talking about JFK. Reagan with Gorbachev, June 12, 1987. That was the wait on this president to find the right tone. Did he come near it or was it too much pressure? Well, I think that he is concerned about looking too weak. I think that's, uh, you know, one of the things that we, it's sort of the hangover of the Obama administration, especially when it comes to Russia, obviously with Syria in particular. You know, how do you stop people from doing terrible things? How do you stop people from doing military exercises, invasions, you know, killing people, blowing up buildings? That's what Americans are seeing nonstop. And they're wondering with this massive apparatus, military apparatus we have, why we can't do more. So he's trying to urge everybody to say this guy should not be there. He's right. legitimate now. It's borderline. You know, the United States is legally prohibited, obviously, from trying regime change short of declaring war. Um, so I think that's the problem for him. I mean, that's, to me, that's the problem for him. But that's what he's trying to do. It's the shadow of Obama and Syria that I think is really governing a lot of what they're doing here. And Professor Schiller, this goes to your classic textbook. It goes to Obama 08. It goes to Reagan 1987. They didn't have the speed of modern media that President Biden faces. How is he doing adapting to the new realities of news flow? Well, I mean, he's not of the generation and he's been making gaffes ever since he you know, went to the United States Senate. So it's not as if he's going to change his style per se. What's surprising to me is the team around him has been his team for a long time. They're almost like fused as one person, but they should know better. Or he should make sure to hire people who know better, who know how to manage these communications or at least to try better than he's been doing. You know, the wisdom that comes with age is great. But if you're not willing to listen to people who are more in tune with what's going on now and how to communicate the message, then you're going to make missteps. But, but Wendy, based on your comment there, that it should, it should have been his team to, to call him out, are you saying that this was perhaps a little bit uh, predetermined heading into this speech and not an ad lib, as people said afterwards? Yeah, no, I mean, I think he is trying to establish that there are certain people who should not be in power, that there's a legitimacy that comes with power, and that when you, you misuse military power particularly and you invade another country, just as George W. Bush said about Saddam Hussein, you know, uh, going back all the way to the first Gulf War and his father's war, you know, this person should not be in power. They're, they are not legitimate, and the world can do something about it. That was the message, and I think it was on purpose. Wendy, is there a difference between the opinion of the president of the United States and the official policy of the administration across a range of issues? I think we're used to the president well, speaking and that being the policy. But is there a difference between his opinion and the policy? Well, yeah, there's a, certainly a huge, you know, Ronald Reagan used to say, you know, I'd issue an order or take a week for it to be implemented in the White House because, you know, policy is a huge bureaucratic apparatus. So the things that we do and the people we have on the ground diplomatically, militarily, 
All those things are set in motion, you know, almost separate from the president, even though he's the commander in chief. It should be the same. But in fact, and how it plays out, I think it can be quite different. Right now, Wendy, we're heading into a midterm uh, period with consumer sentiment at the lowest since 2011. President Biden is going to try to shift the message back to the United States in this speech at 2.45 p.m. today about the fiscal year budget. How much is this focus on taxing the wealthiest individuals an effort to try to channel some of the anger uh, that people feel into this versus actually plugging a deficit gap uh, and actually uh, planning forward for a policy measure? Well, I think the Democrats are counting on this message to be something they can carry through the summer and that will be popular uh, over the long run. I don't think it does anything for anybody who's paying too much money at the gas pump today or finds that there aren't enough products on the shelves or is paying too much uh, for rent, for food, for everything else. So it's not a short term boost, but he's trying to lay out a message for the party they can go into the summer with that sort of positions the Republicans on the wrong side of struggling people, uh, people who are struggling economically. So it makes sense in the long game. I don't think it does anything for him in the short game. Wendy, just quickly, typically a president might wait until after the midterms to, to have a shake-up of his cabinet. Do you think that's due now? Do you think they need to get ahead of yeah. some of this? Yeah, I mean, even Bill Clinton had a shake-up before his first midterm and certainly had a shake-up after his first midterm, which was pretty disastrous for his presidency, although it let him get reelected in 1996 to have the foil of the Republicans. That's the Achilles heel for the Republicans. If they take the Congress in 2022, then Biden can play off them. The Democrats can play off them going into 24. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's really a problem. But, you know, the political cycle has gotten so quick. Yeah. that We just don't know how much is baked in for the, the outcome of the midterm and how much uh, how much can change. Who do you think is letting him down? Who do you think is letting him down? Yeah, who do you think um, needs to go? I think I think his messaging staff. I mean, I think Jeb Psaki does a good job, but I think that his communication staff has not figured out how to shift him, how to simplify things, and the party itself. It has to be same message, on message as a party, as the Republicans have been in lockstep. And, you know, that's simple to absorb in a world that is more confusing than ever, that is more scary, really, than it's been in a while. Coming out of the pandemic, we're supposed to be happy. There's war in Ukraine. These are confusing times. Be simple if you're a politician. Have one message and stick to it. Wendy Schiller of Brown University. Wendy, thank you, as always. One person today I wanted to talk to. I said, I don't know, Paul, 1, 2 a.m. Sure. Get Nordvik. Yep, get him on. Yeah, Nordvik's with us. Wake him up. Legendary with a phenomenal book on Europe, hugely prescient a decade ago, and he joins us today on Japan. Jens, thank you so much uh, with Exante Data for joining us this morning. What are the ramifications for the people of Japan and their government if yen weakens out further, 120, 125, dare I say to 130, and new trade-weighted weakness? Yeah. Well, the yen has already weakened about 10%, uh, really, over the last month. So it's a pretty significant move already. And uh, clearly, if you're importing oil or importing anything, uh, those goods will go up dramatically in price, right? So th those are the effects that, that people will see. Uh, that said, Japan is a different country uh, from almost any other country in the world in that they have not had any broad-based inflation pressure yet. Uh, Japan is uh, a, a country that's been stuck in mostly deflationary uh, environment. Yeah, but yeah, just as a time, now. and Paul Sweeney wants to jump in here. 
I, I agree with that, that they've been stuck in a disinflationary, deflationary trend, but on a nominal GDP basis, they define zombie. How <laughs> zombie is the zombie this morning? Well, so uh, what we're seeing in the yen is, is just uh, very, very dramatic. Uh, we've not seen yen moves like this. Uh, I, I frankly can't uh, remember a weakening move like this in my entire career. So uh, this is, is something we have not seen before. And what I would, I would say is, is so interesting now is that the Bank of Japan has been trying in different ways to maximize essentially the amount of easy monetary policy they deliver, right? And the last formula they came up with was the yield curve control, fixing the 10-year yield. And what is so kind of ironic about that policy is that when global yields are under upward pressure, as we are seeing everywhere in the world right now, they actually get forced because of the yield curve control to buy more, and the Bank of Japan had to announce overnight that they were buying an unlimited amount of Japanese bonds at an auction. So you have this ironic situation when, when the need to ease is going away, kind of, they actually have to do more. It's a pro-cyclical policy, and that's why the yen is getting really interesting now and having an explosive move. So, yens, I mean, when I grew up, the yen was a safe haven. Is that still the case in yep. any any regard? So uh, I, I think uh, over the last month or so, we've seen just a dramatic reassessment of what the yep. what yep. the yen is and entails. Right. So a lot of people have a type of yen hedge in their book. If something goes terribly wrong, we're going to make a bit of, of money on having yen calls in our portfolio. Those yen calls essentially didn't work at all when you had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They, again, was just stuck, right? So those calls were worthless. So I think part of the reason why the yen has then turned to become so weak is that there's a structural reassessment of whether it's worth owning that insurance policy. So people are getting out of that insurance, and that, in the process of the adjustment, entails actually uh, selling the yen. Okay, we're going to sell the yen. I, I get the dynamics, but I want to talk about the lessons we can learn in the West from the zombification and now this huge first derivative move of yen weakness. What has Europe learned from it where you wrote your authoritative book? Well, so uh, I, think, I think one thing we've seen in Japan, right, is that the financial sector uh, has really been uh, suffering from uh, just a yield curve with, with no motion at all. Uh, there's been very little bond trading in Japan for uh, a while since uh, these policies introduced. There's a lot of different banks that have been into serious trouble, the, the regional <clears> banks, right? So, they, so having a yield curve that is entirely stuck, entirely flat, has some serious costs well, okay, including this, financial stability issues in the, in the regional banks. Yeah, yep. just, we're going to run out of time. Is this our MMT experiment? I mean, is Japan the test tube for newfangled theories on monetary policy that perhaps suggest they don't work? I think what we're learning here is that pure inflation targeting is a policy that can really be causing significant trouble, right? You need to look at financial stability too. And in Japan now, they are facing an issue around stability of their currency that they've been not for, for a really decade. And that's going to create a change in how uh, the Bank of Japan is thinking, I think. 
Jens, on short notice, thank you so much for the clinic today. Jens Nordrig with Exante Data. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.